Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. There's a phrase that we say often in the church. It goes like this, Jesus is Lord. We say Jesus is Lord. There's a phrase we say often, uh, there's no name except Jesus by which people can be saved. There is this good news that we're here to proclaim, this term euangelion. We talk about the good news as an announcement. We call this, not this building, right, and not this event, but we call this community church. Church is a people. In the Greek, the term is ekklesia. Can you say ekklesia? Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. There's no other name except Jesus by which men can be saved. Euangelion, the good news. Ekklesia, which means church. These are all borrowed terms. All of them. They're all terms that turn up in your 11th or 12th grade history class if you're studying anything about ancient Rome. All of these phrases are borrowed. And I want to begin today with that reminder because what the church is so often doing, what the writers and the scriptures are doing, are paying attention to the language of the time and grabbing hold of these terms, right, and the power and authority of the Holy Spirit using this language to help not just us, right, because they're not just thinking off into the future, the scripture and the words of the scripture had to have meant something to the people it was written to then, right? Before it's to anyone else. And it's not a, like a handbook. We were not giving a handbook for our faith or an owner's manual. We were giving stories and letters and laments and songs. And what these writers are so often doing, and I mentioned those four because those are a big four, is they're using that language to help paint a picture of what the truer story is. There's a story happening in Rome and, but there's apparently a truer one, and they use that language. They co-opt that language. It's important to see how the New Testament borrowed from, for instance, Caesar Augustus. Caesar's Lord is what they're, they're taking there. Caesar's Lord. There's actually a coin. I think we have a picture of this. Found where these, this coin is, is an inscription that they found where it says, there's no other name except Augustus by which men can be saved. And Euangelion was the good news that there was a new emperor on the scene. There was a new Caesar. And the ecclesia was the gathered, like, political crew and group of people who would come together to help organize, often around the Roman imperial cult. First church borrowing from this language from the Roman Empire. And I, I begin here to show uh, you how... Um, we need to pay attention to this when we begin to read books of the Bible or passages that are um, a bit murkier, maybe. So, let's talk about Nero. Nero was an emperor. Nero was, um, anyone know anything about Nero? Nero was a madman. He was, he was um, not well. Uh, he crucified Christians. He lit them on fire to give light to some of his outdoor parties, a renowned persecutor of Christians. 
Nero actually um, committed suicide by having a servant stab him in the head with a sword, and that'll be important to come back to, weirdly, in a minute. After Nero, you're like, okay. Heads up, I just want to encourage you to take notes today. And you're going to be wondering, where the heck is he going? And it's all by design. After Nero, we'll come back to him again, committed suicide, a very competent general named Vespasian assumed the Roman throne. Vespasian had two sons, Titus and Domitian. And he seems to have considered Titus superior for governmental offices and actual responsibilities. Um, and maybe to not offend his other son, we don't know, he gave Domitian these other honors that carried like very little authority and very little responsibility. Ever been patronized before? Like, yeah, why don't you, uh, why don't you, you know, be the trash guy? Like, cool, Dad, thanks. All right, Vespasian uh, appointed Titus as commander of an army that would absolutely end up demolishing the city of Jerusalem when Israel revolted, um, revolted in Rome in 66 CE. But when Vespasian died, Titus assumed the throne as emperor, and then Domitian continues to kind of grow up on the sidelines. And there's a lot of historical evidence uh, that there was a lot of jealousy, insecurity, and some vindictiveness that began to well up. So when Titus mysteriously croaks, it's a whole other story, Domitian assumes the throne, and you can be certain that Domitian would man, wouldn't like in any way manifest any symptoms of long-held deep insecurity. So a little character profile on our man Domitian. Can you say Domitian? He's our main character today. Domitian, um, fellas, take note, made his wife refer to him as my lord and my master. Uh, he's a joke. He issued an imperial edict that all statutes of him be made of solid gold. His letters began, Our Lord and our God commands you. Try that one when you're like writing your pen pal. When Lucius Santorinus staged a small rebellion on the edge of the empire, uh, Domitian quickly put down the rebellion and paraded the head of their leader around Rome. I should have probably put a little trigger warning for younger kids in the, in the uh, service today. It's going to get bloodier. Now, Domitian, for whatever reason, I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze Domitian, but he had these official displays of power. His hallmark were these arena games. In 86 CE, he founded the Capitolian Games. These were basically Olympic games, Olympic contests where displays, chariot racing, a thing that involved four horsemen, a whole other story, and competitions, oratory, music, and acting. Everybody who went to them was required to do a bunch of stuff. Big, big event display of power. You got an insecure emperor on the throne. First, everyone's required to wear white togas. This is actually where the original sorority party began. Picture just joke. I got really bad jokes today, guys. It's not even written down. They just come to me. Picture of, <laughs> you're like, of course. You didn't. So picture a stadium for a second. 60, 70, 80,000 people who had come to his Olympics who begin, um, who, where as they walk in, the leaders of these different provinces that would come to these games, first thing that they would do is they would go before Domitian and his officials and hear a report. A report. They would address um, the leaders of these various areas, and they would say this, a refrain literally like this. He would say to a leader, to you, leader or elder of such and such province and region, Thanks for coming. And then he would have this refrain. I have this for you, these list of things that you're doing well, and then I have these things against you. And if you do not stop doing these things, I will come and snuff you out. I will take care of you. In other words, I, I, I like what I see here. 
and I like what I see here, but I, I, I don't like this. This, you would repeat this phrase, this I have against you. To you, the leader and elder and overseer of the area, I have this, this for you, but I have this against you. And he would go through region after region after region. If you're taking notes, you should write that down. If you've ever studied the scriptures, something should be maybe starting to go off in your, on your dashboard. Then he would begin the worship portion. So Olympic games, he's just met with the provinces. Hey, for this, I have this for you, this against you, this for you, this against you. He had two group of priests who were employed to lead the masses in worship. The priests and those who attended the games all wore white. Take note. The spectators and the priests dressed in white. The second detail is the priests would wear crowns of gold on their head, and the crowns would have written on the forehead the divine titles of Domitian. As a way of just reminding everybody, these priests' job was to lead everyone in worship of who? Domitian. And so the games would begin. 24 priests, always 24 priests, who would take off their crowns and bow before Domitian, and recite with 60,000, 70,000 people this. This is one inscription that was found. Great are you, our Lord and God. God's got no ego. Worthy are you to receive honor and power and glory. Worthy are you, Lord of the earth, to inherit the kingdom. Lord of lords, highest of the high, Lord of the earth, God of all things. Lord, of, Lord God and Savior for eternity. These same 24 singers generally followed Domitian everywhere while reciting the words, Our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power. And at the games, these priests would lead the whole white-robed crowd in a singing worship service and waving palm branches. So after the priests finished leading the crowd in worship, Domitian would summon the leaders of these promises in front of thousands of spectators again, and then he would tell them, this is what I like about you. This is what I don't. Just a flex. Now, we'll get back to the games in a second. But there are other displays of power that are really important to understand. Let me show you this picture. Next slide. This right here on the left is uh, Domitian depicted with a scroll in his hand. Scrolls in the hand of Roman empires. It wasn't just Domitian that did this. Were another display of their power. Nero is um, known for having... Uh, Sculptures built with him holding them like this. They were said uh, to contain the authority of the emperor. A popular saying of the time was that, the, oh, that only the emperor was worthy to unroll the scroll. It was like the symbol of divine wisdom, knowledge, the lineage. Names were so important in that day. Only the emperor was, quote, worthy to open the scroll. So not surprisingly, show, scrolls show up all the time with Roman emperors. To the coin next to you, sometime between 77 and 81 CE, Domitian's infant son passed away. And so Domitian never won to miss an opportunity to kind of build up his power from the heavens. He put together, um, kind of fashioned a legacy of his deceased son into a god. And just like Augustus, he used the coins. They didn't have like Twitter. This was like how they would share information was through coins. These coins portrayed his son as sitting on the earth and holding seven stars in his hands. Also like Augustus, Domitian got some mileage out of the son of God idea. Only this time he was the father and his son was the son of God. Next slide. Domitian then established the city of Ephesus as his neocoros. This is like his worshiping center. So the letter to the people 
in Ephesus was called Ephesians. If you've ever read through the Bible, you know you come across Ephesians. This was like his crown jewel. Domitian desired to be worshipped as a god, literally just like Jupiter. And so when you'd enter the port of Ephesus, and I was just here, um, I got to go away for a couple days uh, with my wife to Greece, and we went up to Ephesus and toured this exact spot. You're greeted by this massive temple with each of the columns depicting the gods of the Roman pantheon. And of course, on top of the columns was a statue of Domitian. This is a little like sketch of how it would have looked. Next to the temple was the Agora. Write down the Agora. This is important. This is a marketplace for people in all sorts of trades, seamstresses, stonemasons, metalworkers, traders, uh, people trading spice and produce. They made their living. This is the place you depended on your survival. This is the marketplace. Domitian understood their dependence on the Agora, and so he exploited this by setting up another display of his power. Domitian declared, hear this, any person wanting to do any kind of business in the Agora first had to acknowledge Domitian as God and then make an incense offering to him. Once you had made an acceptable display of worship, you would receive a mark, probably some kind of like ink stain is what they think, and then you could sell goods in the Agora. By the way, do you, can you imagine what the emperors were referred to as the common folks, how they would refer to them? One of the like, slangs and language that was used to describe them. Can you imagine what that might be in light of that? Beasts. They would call them beasts. You have to bear this mark in order to be able to trade. It's interesting. This would be um, maybe the equivalent, I mean, not quite the equivalent, but like if you don't pledge allegiance to a nation and bow down to a particular system of being, you actually can't live. You're not going to be able to really trade and provide for your family. So in spite of all these displays of power, Domitian had one distinct problem. Can you guess what it is? One little problem. Oh, man, it was just a bunch of people like you and I. These annoying little Christians. A pretty relatively poor group in the shadows of the empire. Guess what they did? Guess what they refused to do? They refused to make the offering. In fact, there was one group, which we'll hear mentioned in just a minute, one group that would say things like this. Hey, guys, this is amongst the Christians. Hey, guys, it's not a big deal. Obviously, we know Caesar's not, a, like, not an emperor. I mean, not God. Obviously, we know Domitian's not like Lord of all. We know who it is. But just go ahead and like do the incense thing and like just bow down and participate in the system. Why would you put your family at risk? Why would you do that? Just participate in the system. We all know secretly in your heart, you know that Domitian's not like the one on the throne. We'll come back to them in a minute. So there's this rumor, and this is definitely some serious conjecture. We don't know, and they have some, like, very just, like, hard-to-nail-down accounts. So I want to give that as a preface. But Domitian seemed to invite in leaders of different subsets of the church, and the idea, like any good strategist, was if you chop off the head, metaphorically and literally, not with Domitian, but with Nero, like, you would—the the, the movement would disperse. 
These Christians who aren't bowing down are sort of this annoying little poor kind of rebel group. They're not really making a big deal, but they're just, they're, they're not bowing down. And anybody who's got this kind of insecurity um, and, and power issues like Domitian, it has a problem with this. If you can just get their leaders out of the equation, then these Christians will sort of disappear. And so there is uh, some writing that seems to point to a man named John in 90 CE, who was a pastor who led the church in Ephesus. Again, remember, Ephesus is the pride of Domitian. He was exiled to an island of Patmos. And so these people and these pastors who would write these letters, would, I mean, sorry, these bladders who were exiled, they would write these letters back to the church in Ephesus. They would write letters to the church. Do you know what? I have one. I have one of the letters. Turn with me to Revelation. <laughs> I'm such a dork. Turn with me to Revelation. <laughs> you following me? Maybe you shouldn't be. You're like, what the heck is he doing? History, history, history. I want to paint a picture because now we actually have a letter that was written from the guy, John of Patmos, to this church. And we begin to read things like this. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor. By the way, has anyone ever tried to read through Revelation? It's pretty, pretty wild, huh? How many of you get like slightly tripped up with like the beast with a bajillion eyes on it? You know, you're a little like, ah, okay, I'm going to leave this part out. It's like Leviticus and Revelation, like just skip. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, John has this vision and he writes this letter to them saying, I, I have this vision giving a people, creatures, giving honor and thanks to God who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Ding, 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 ding. Remember Domitian's deceased son who was depicted on coins with the seven stars in his hands? And when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. In his right hand, it says, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Remember how Domitian would summon the leaders of the various provinces and publicly evaluate them? Remember that refrain? Have this against you. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, John writes to this church, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deed, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, and you have been tested, and you have tested those who claim to be apostles and who are not and who are found false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary John writing, he's like, oh, you guys are going through a lot and it's hard. And he says, yet this I hold against you. You've forsaken your first love. And he goes on from there. But later on in this section, so this refrain, he borrows from Domitian. And he says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. You know who the Nicolaitans were? You know who the Nicolaitans were? Say, Andrew, I care who the Nicolaitans are. You still care, right? The Nicolaitans, they were the folks that were the compromisers. They were the folks who were like, nah, 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 it's all right. It's all right. You know in your heart Jesus is Lord, but go ahead and bow down to Domitian so you can actually get your money. 
Remember the saying that only emperor was willing to open the scroll? Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll, and it's seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. It's not an emperor who is Lord over all. It's not an emperor who can open the scroll and see eternity and is sovereign over all. It's a lamb. And who's the lamb? If you know your Bible at all, who's the lamb? Jesus. Dang. You are worthy at the end of Revelation 5 to take the scroll and open its seals. Remember everybody wearing white? After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, and no one could count from every nation, tribe, and people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, I do not know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He's like, I've seen the throne. John gets this vision that has inspired, you know, like Christian weed smokers for generations. And, and he, he looks up and he sees this, this vision. And this vision is something of what is called in, in, um, in, um, in amongst historians as apocalyptic literature. He crafts this in such a way that they would understand, these people, what's really going on. And he says, I've seen the throne of the universe, and Domitian ain't on it. God is. So don't bow down, whatever you do. The thing I don't have against you is you guys, like, are totally against those Nicolaitans. Those ones who are trying to get you to compromise. Listen, Domitian's a fake and he's a fraud. You're a poor little subset of the population, this little group of Christians. Something that's really important is Christians lived in such deep fear of Nero. We don't really know how much, if at all, Domitian directly persecuted, like how bad he was, but we do know that Nero was. And so there's actually this place in the scriptures where Nero and Domitian are put together as these two beasts. And there's this number attached to them. He says, six, six, six. He actually describes the beast as six, 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 which you add up in Hebraic numerology, the, the names of Domitian and Nero, and you get six, six, six. Fascinating. John's doing this like wild thing where he's going, Domitian is the new Nero. And I get that you're afraid, but you don't have to be afraid. I assume that when people read the book of Revelation, they didn't come up with nonsense books. They didn't all of a sudden, like, this would be a great book series. You know what? I have this sense, like a Left Behind video with the guy from the old 80s TV show. Wait, wait, wait. I, I know the Antichrist in 666. You know what? I bet it's, 
Gorbachev. No, 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 I bet it's Reagan. No, 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 I bet it's Obama. No, no, I bet it's, like, anyone heard any of this nonsense? If you didn't grow up around church, God bless you, you didn't grow up around that stuff. Hopefully you grew up around church and didn't grow up around that stuff. Man, no, I don't think that they read this letter sitting there, likely underground. They found tunnels where Christians would meet underground, and they, and they started going, let's exploit this. They wept. I got to imagine these people wept. They read the letter outside, out, out loud and were filled with hope. Can you imagine an eight-year-old kid who'd been to the Domitian Games, and you're reading this, and you're like, oh, my gosh. This is what John's doing. I imagine the first people wept because they were real people in a real place, in a real time, who had friends and neighbors who had been pushed down, who were not able to participate in economics, maybe even slaughtered in the name of Jesus. And John is saying, better to die for God than to live for some phony Domitian. Guys, we have a lot of Domitians around us, don't we? (laughs) You got them in your world, I have them in mine. And they say, bow down. Right? They say, bow down. And often, there are these moments when everybody around you is bowing down. Now, Andrew, what you don't understand that in my business, like, you have to do it this way, and you have to cut corners, and you have to act slightly unethically. No, no, you don't understand. Like, everybody, it's like you're back in high school. Like, everybody's doing it. And now it's the only way to get everybody in my business to do the right thing. No, 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 you don't understand. It's like everybody talks like this. You kind of have to be a cynic if you live in New England. Everybody has a little edge. Like, that's how you need to enter. You know, you don't understand. It's just not how we do things. You have to be ready to put people down. Everybody does it this way. You don't understand. You don't understand. Like, everybody around me has all that stuff. Like, my kids have to have it because, like, everybody around me and all their parents have it. We're surrounded by Domitians. And sometimes you can feel like you're the only one. And John says, whatever you do, don't bow down. Now, if you scour first and second century early church documents, you find something that's so mind-blowing. You're like, there's no way. But if any of you who are a student of history, this is one of those facts that sociologists, anthropologists write about and talk about how fast Christianity grew and what of a freak thing it was. Things don't grow that fast in the ancient world. But there's a general belief among scholars that by the early first century, so we're talking 30, maybe 40 years after Domitian, Ephesus was 90% Christian. 90% Christian is what the number most people believe. Let's just be conservative. Let's say it's 80. Like, that's unbelievable. Ephesus became a thriving center of Jesus worship. No money, no buildings, no budget, no clever bumper stickers, and somehow the whole city got turned upside down for Jesus. And what happened then in Ephesus spread, and you basically get the rest of the letters to the New Testament. What you discover is that the revolution of Jesus, these followers just, it spread and spread and spread and spread. And in a couple of years, a couple hundred years, give or take, you have most of the empire with Christians all over it, which raises, I think, a few fascinating questions. What would the church in Ephesus at this time have to say to us today? If our brothers and sisters in Ephesus could speak to us this morning, what kind of perspectives would they have for us? What kind of advice would they give us? 
What would they say about the kinds of things we complain about? Ugh. Yeah, but Andrew, traffic. <laughs> you guys can meet in public? You can say things about Jesus out loud? You can praise him out loud in public? I don't know if they, know they could have conceived of this. There's actually a city in Asia Minor called Cappadocia, and there's literally an underground city. And there's all these places that are almost, it's, it's almost three stories below that Christians lived in and thrived in for months and months at a time so they could worship and live together in authentic community and not get killed by the emperors. I would imagine the church at Ephesus would speak strongly to us. I also imagine they would say something like this, you can do it. You can do it. You can live the way of Jesus. Like in a radical kind of way. Guys, our church, what makes our church good is not if the teachings are right. It's not if like, this, like it's entertaining. It's not if the music is good. It's not if the facilities are right. It's not if the programming is like in tip-top shape. No, what makes our church, when our church is at, a, at its best, is when we are calling one another to radical abandonment to the way of Jesus. And I got to imagine they would say things like, you can do it. You can live another way. Another world actually is possible. You can embody a whole different way of being. Yeah, yeah, but you don't understand, guys. I hear you, but we don't have the money. We don't have the cultural influence right now. It's kind of slipping in the West. And I just imagine them looking back like, you have the Holy Spirit. You need more money? You need more cultural influence? You need some clown in the White House to back your priorities? Really? That was not a shot at one party. That was a shot at both parties. Man. You have the Holy Spirit. You have each other. You have this living hope that God is on the throne and will put it all back together and you need something else. I assume they would say to you directly, you can do it. You can do it. I don't know, like the Domitian in your life, like the Domitian of how thin you are, the Domitian of how in control you are, the Domitian of how smart you are, the Domitian of how much you've accomplished. I would just assume the church in Ephesus would come back to us again and again and go, you don't have to bow down to that. You don't have to bow down to that. We made a really powerful emperor really mad and we did it. John did it through this letter without ever needing to name Domitian. See, Christians think things like this are a call to culture war. They're not. They're a call to embody a more beautiful way. The best form of critique is by creating something more beautiful than the wreckage that you see around you. Fascinating thing about the movement is that the more Caesars tried to crush the Jesus movement, the more they went after pastors and leaders, the more they executed people in this movement, the faster it grew. And this is not just a feature of the early church. It's what happened in China, and it's beginning to happen in Iran. 300 years later, when it became legal and an accepted thing to be a Christian, and in fact, you almost needed to be a Christian to climb the ladder socially. If things shifted dramatically. Guess what? Guess what the movement started to what? Slow down. 
the harder it was and the more it was persecuted and the more demand and the more it was about how real is Jesus to you, the faster and stronger it grew. So I don't want to hear one person in our church be full of fear about the like evil anti-Christian agenda. Yes, our culture is shifting. Yes, there's some things that are broken that we need to push back against. But if anything, it's a cause to rejoice because we know in history, it will be a time that will stir us to deeper faith and deeper dependence and deeper trust in a totally different way of being in the world. I'm not fired up at all. I end here. John does something really fascinating. This thing about worship at the end in chapter 5. So there's this new song the elders are all singing. He says, then I looked and heard the voice of angels numbering thousands upon thousands. That's a Jewish euphemism for forever. And tens of times, 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And then a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the land who was slain to receive wealth and uh, power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth all and all that in them was singing. It's like this, this progression in the text. We've talked about this. It's like he sees the saints worshiping, but then there's like a balcony and then there's more creatures and there's more creatures and then he clicks the lights on and it's like, there's an upper deck. It like keeps going and then there's like stuff under the sea. I don't even know what's happening. They're everywhere. It keeps going and going. There were all these people worshiping that I didn't see at first. Here's why I mentioned this to close. You are never worshiping God alone. We think at 10 a.m. the worship service started. It didn't. We joined a worship service that was already going. Our th- see, our thing is when we get into situations where we're the only follower of Jesus, we get into situations where like, I think God's calling me to simplicity, which is going to mean I don't have like the latest outfit, or I think God's calling me to give this up, or like move in some way that's antithetical to maybe the world around me, or not bow down to this, or not v- vote this way, or not pledge, like whatever it is. When we find these moments where we feel alone as we're embodying the way of Jesus, and you're the only one standing, and you think you're the only one there, it's just not true. When Domitians of your life come rearing their head and you're thinking, how am I going to beat this back? I don't know how to not bow down to this temptation. I don't know how to not bow down to this way of thinking and mode of thinking. You're not alone. There's just like this eternal worship service that he wants this church that is like getting beat down. He wants them to know there's something bigger going on. It's the original 24-7 prayer movement. And it involves like this whole created realm. One writer in the Psalms says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They pour forth speech night and day. So the songwriters understood that the heavens, just by their beauty and the fact that, like, they don't even know how many stars, they were like, it's like the whole earth is worshiping. So when you're driving to work tomorrow morning and the sun rises and it's beautiful and you thank God, you're joining a massive worship service involving rocks and trees and waves. When you're rejected, or when you're in your cubicle and you're feeling a little dead to the world, I think you should take a moment and remember the church in Ephesus and those that died and remember your inheritance and the larger story you find yourself in and begin praying for your coworkers and begin asking, Lord, how can I join you in what you're doing? Because you're not alone and you're joining a bigger story. There is a big freaking band. You can step in and join something massive and declare to the Domitians, you're not on the throne. 
You don't have the last word. You don't have the last word. So would everyone stand with me? We're going to just close right here. Okay. You ready? I want to do something. Now, I need everyone to use their outside voice. All right? Use your outside voice. The, 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 um, the people, um, the, the, especially in Jewish tradition, when you would worship, the way Jesus would have worshipped, there was weeping and laughing. When they would bring the scroll into the temple, it'd be like a party. It would be a ruckus. So for all those who feel like, yes, I know I'm a little buttoned up. I know I can be a little reserved. It's just my personality. Um, I think God in heaven is going to like, you're going to, this is a moment to train for heaven because heaven's going to be freaking loud. It's going to be loose. I'll say this. It's going to be loose. And so with everything you have, I want to read Revelation to you. I want to invite you to worship with me. Ready? You're going to respond. You ready? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So may you, may you identify the Domitians in your world and may you see them for what they are. And may you never bow down because you've seen the throne and you've seen who's on it. May those who are struggling, may you be reminded that you're going to make it. May you know you're going to make it. And may you know you're not alone. And may you remember, just like I did a few months back, as I walked through the city of Ephesus, that Domitian's empire is a pile of rocks.